Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, everybody. If you can uh, take a seat, we're going to get this uh, party started here. Uh, well, welcome to the uh, Commonwealth Club's Marine Conversations. Uh, I'm Bruce Robbie. I'm on the Board of Governors of the Commonwealth Club, and uh, my company, Relevant Wealth Advisors, is one of the corporate sponsors of this series. We're doing this every month in Marin County. We have an awesome night tonight, as I'm sure you all know. Uh, Pam and Ann are here tonight to talk about an exciting topic. I'm talking to Pam briefly before the event, and I'm, you know, okay, Pam, what is a witch? So she gave me the long answer, and it turns out it's a badass woman. That's the short answer, right? Is that pretty good summing up? Very so much so. So on that note, I'm going to get off the stage and let these two lovely ladies take over. Thank you so much. Well, thank you to the Commonwealth Club for having both Parlay House in the house uh, and for this amazing partnership. I think this is probably the first of many such endeavors where we gather forces together. And in fact, um, I was thrilled when I was asked to moderate this discussion with Pam today because the, the essence of a strong woman and all of the different variations of what it means to be a strong woman is at the essence of what we do. I founded the organization in 2012 when I I was hit with the triple threat of uh, running a turnaround company during the recession. I had my cancer come back, needed to take time off to have surgery. And instead of my boss saying, we're with you, he said, you're fired. And I lost my health, my job, and my last kid went to college at the same time. And all of a sudden, I realized that what I was missing was real relationships with women who lifted each other up. And so I founded the organization to be an inclusive organization that we talk about the things that there's no other safe space to talk about in someone's home. So imagine in this world, inviting strangers into your home. If we all just did that, what an amazing world it would be. Um, and there's something about the strength that comes from just being able to be your true and authentic self. And I think that's the perfect transition to this interview with Pam, who has written a bold and brave book um, that's about a lot of things related to strength in women and witchcraft. And Pam, I'd love in your words for you to tell us what, what this book is all about. Absolutely. First of all, I want to thank you so much, Anne, for having me. Thank you, Timothy. Thank you, Wendy Norris and everybody involved. I'm so, so thrilled to be here. And thank you all for coming. It's very nice to have seats that are filled. Bless you. Um, so, you know, it's been a really interesting ride talking about this book and watching how this book is being marketed because the main subject area that's written on the back is witchcraft. And it's put in a lot of the occult sections, new age sections, witchcraft sections of the bookstore. And that's great. There's certainly a lot of literal witchcraft in here. I am a practicing pagan. I identify as a witch. I'm also Jewish. So you can call me a Jew witch. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, that that's definitely an important aspect of the book, but so much of the book is also about the archetype of the witch and why this archetype has been with us for many centuries and what it tells us about our fear and our fantasies about female power and feminine power. And so this is as much a book about gender studies, it's as much a book about feminism as it is about any kind of literal witchcraft practice. And it was actually pretty challenging trying to weave it all together because there's a lot of history lessons in here. There's a lot of my own, you know, bits of my own memoir and autobiography, and then a lot of analysis of pop culture witches and what they are here to tell us too. Um, so really, this is my love letter to the witch, the archetype, the symbol. And my hope for this book is that it will invite readers in not only who might practice witchcraft although you're welcome to, but also for people who are just generally interested in female power and how that's been vilified throughout history and now how it's being reclaimed, which is a really exciting thing. Fabulous. So why are witches so popular right now? I mean, think about whether it's TV or, you know, the evolution of characters or women who proclaim themselves witches. We're sort of in a witchy moment. Yes. Why? So I have a podcast called The Witch Wave, and I've come to think of this moment in time as 
another wave of witches. But what's happening that is really fascinating to me and what emerged when I was researching this book is with every wave of feminism, there's a renewed interest in witches. So in the 19th century, when we were trying to win the vote for women, there was a woman named Matilda Jocelyn Gage. Um, A lot of you might not have heard of her. She was a contemporary of Susan B. Anthony's, and she wrote an entire book called Woman, Church, and State, wherein she posited that the reason that it was mostly women who were accused and killed during the witch hunts of Europe is because they were a threat to the church and a threat to the patriarchy. Now, what's interesting is that's not necessarily true, but it's it's a it's a story that she latched onto, and I delve into that in great detail in the book. Interestingly, she had a grandson, or excuse me, she had a son-in-law. That son-in-law's name is L. Frank Baum, who wrote The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And he wrote that book specifically to build a essentially a matriarchy in fiction. If you think about it, all four realms are run by witches. Two of those witches are good witches. So for the first time in history, certainly in fiction, we see a good witch figure. Um, Glinda, of course, gets much more popular in 1939 with the MGM movie, but he really was inspired by his mother-in-law and, you know, her kind of reframing witches as these positive, feminine, if threatening characters throughout history. So anyway, the book really traces second wave feminism, third wave feminism when I was coming of age, and now fourth wave feminism, which is more intersectional and inclusive. It's digital. And all of those threads, I think, are really feeding into why witches are popular. I mean, think about the phrase nasty woman. That is a negative epithet that a politician said to a very powerful lady as an insult. And then a lot of women reclaimed that negative epithet. And they said, you know what? I am a nasty woman. So some people are doing that with the word witch. They're saying, okay, you think I'm this threatening, powerful, destabilizing force? Hell yeah, I am. And that's great, right? But you also have a lot of people who are becoming disenfranchised from public systems which are run by the patriarchy. So our religious systems, our government systems, our business systems are all still centering largely white, straight, cisgendered men, right, who are very powerful. Whereas, you know, the witch, the spirituality of the witch, the story of the witch, um, a lot of the different hierarchical power structures of the witch, which are much more collective. They're a coven, right? I suppose we're in a coven right now. Um, All of those are an alternative to these patriarchal structures that are just failing us over and over again. So I think that's another reason. And I think, you know, thirdly, a lot of people, especially millennial women, are attracted to witchcraft because there's no one book, It's very personal. You know, there's no pope of witchcraft. You can really follow your own path with it. Um, And it's really beautiful. I mean, honestly, it's a very sensual, sensory uh, religious practice or spiritual practice that honors the body and honors nature and allows for people to take responsibility for their own lives and try to conjure change in the world. So I think there's a lot of reasons for it. And it's all pretty appealing, if you ask me. Well, I I don't think anyone here would disagree with that appeal. But you didn't get there easily. I mean, I I know from having read your book that you were in the corporate world as a witch for for a long time. Can you talk a little bit about that experience, how the the patriarchy reacted, how women reacted and how you got to where you are from a from a work standpoint? Absolutely. So I worked at Getty Images for 14 years. I have some former Gettyites here in the audience. Ladies, um, they still like me. Um, and, you know, the truth be told, I think anyone who was looking closely enough would not have been surprised. Um, and people who became my friends, they knew that outside of work, I was a practicing pagan. I was also curating a lot of... Can you can you talk to us about what that means to be a practicing pagan? You sure. can continue your story, no, but I think course. this is probably helpful. Of course. And this is honestly what's so tricky about talking about witches is that it changes from context to context depending on 
how we mean it. Sometimes we mean it symbolically. Sometimes we mean it literally. In my case, it's all of the above. Um, so it's a very shape-shifting word, just like witches are shape-shifting. So paganism is essentially... Um, you know, some people might call it a religion. I prefer the term spiritual practice that honors the divinity in all things, that celebrates the cycles of nature and the body. Um, and then a lot of it is derived from Western Europe, though many people are incorporating practices from all different traditions, a lot of African diaspora traditions, indigenous traditions. Um, and actually that can be a real complicated issue with things like cultural appropriation. And maybe we'll talk about that later but um and and it really is about you know just tapping into the divinity of this amazing marvelous world that we live in um and, and certainly there's an aspect of ritual to it um i also you know my coven and I, we do spells, we meditate, we do all kinds of other things. But paganism, in, in my understanding of it, is really about worshiping the divinity of nature. Just to dig down into this a little bit, talk about what a spell would be like in your con in your context. Yes. So um, I forget who said it. It might have been Starhawk who said that a spell is a prayer with props. And essentially, you know, it, it, it and, and, it, and it's, um, a symbolic action with the intent to actually change oneself and perhaps even the material world. And so when I'm doing a spell, I often am using a candle, I'm using incense, um, some kind of beautiful stones. Sometimes I'm writing things down, sometimes I'm burning it, you know, but my understanding of spellcraft is that it is very personal. So you can certainly buy a book of spells and boy, did I buy a lot of them when I was a teenager, but I've actually come to liken it as if you're learning to cook, you might buy a lot of recipe books, but then you become a chef when you start like creating your own recipes. And in the same way, I'm now at a point in my life where I do my own spells and it's based on things I learned, but you don't always have the ingredients they have in those books. I certainly didn't when I was a teenager. I was improvising all the time with all kinds of weird stuff. And, you know, the fact of the matter is I call myself a pragmatic witch because if this didn't work, I wouldn't bother, you know, like it's been, it's, it's results oriented. And for me, when I've cast spells, they've come true or they've manifested, not necessarily in the way I might've imagined or in the timeline, but it's very, very effective. Can you tell one story of a spell that became the truth? Sure. When I was still actually at Getty Images, um, I, had been us what we call it a solitary practitioner, which is a witch who just studies and practices magic on their own in the privacy of their own home without a coven. So that's what I was. And that's what I think a lot of people are for most of their lives. And then I got to a point in my twenties where I just really longed for a teacher, some kind of an elder. And I really longed for community and I didn't know how to find it. Um, and so I was like, Hey, I should do And there a was spell. no parlay house. There was no parlay house. There was no the wing. There was none of it. Um, and so um, I did a spell. And that spell, you know, without d going into too many of the details, was essentially, um, you know, putting intention into... Uh, I was using some flower petals and offerings to what I call spirit, capital S spirit. People have a lot of different names for it. And, you know, going to this very special spot in Prospect Park near my house where I live, um, well, house, what a dream, my apartment <laughs> where I live in Brooklyn, um, still manifesting that one. Um, and, you know, doing this spell, this offering, asking for a teacher and a community, and the very next day on my lunch break at Getty Images, I was wandering around uh, uh, Soho where the office used to be. And I found myself wandering into a place called the Open Center. It moved uptown since then. But this is like our, in New York City, it's like our esoteric learning center. So you can take every kind of class in there from like Reiki to mythology to herbalism. And I stumbled into the bookstore, which they had a beautiful stocked bookstore. And I just struck up a conversation with the person who worked there. And I said, do you have any books on witchcraft? And he said, we don't call it that here. 
But he said, we do have a woman who teaches herbalism, but she is a witch. We sell her books here. Like she's definitely who you're looking for. And that is a woman named Robin Rose Bennett, who's an incredible herbalist and green witch. I started taking classes with her and my world just exploded. Um, I soon found out, and I don't think she'd uh, be sorry that I'm publicizing this, that she, even though she teaches those classes publicly, people who gravitate towards her, she kind of invites into her own private apprenticeship. Um, and so I joined her circle and that just became this incredible experience, not only of learning herbalism and more um, kind of nature-based magic, but f- learning how to connect to other people in this more vulnerable way. Uh, because I think a lot of people who gravitate towards the archetype of the witch are often outsiders of some kind. I certainly saw myself as an outsider when I was growing up. I was super sensitive, super into art and creative. And, you know, I had a few close friends, but not that many because I was kind of a weird, curious kid and not, I was a little bit atypical in that way. Um, so I had a, a bit of my guard up when it came to doing anything in a community and through periodically meeting in this circle and doing ritual together and, you know, ritual, it's, it's not only that you're doing these spells or these, this magic, this meditation, you're also sharing what's going on in your life. You're sharing what you're struggling with, what you're proud of, where you're wounded, what you want to strengthen. Um, and so it becomes this emotional support system as well as, <clears throat> excuse me, as well as being this incredible spiritual electric experience too. So that is a spell that worked for me quite well. Yes. That's, that's amazing. You know, I think a lot of us feel in some aspect of our life a little bit like the other. And I want to just close the loop on this conversation by bringing you back to the work world and how, you know, this is not to rail against Getty Images because it's obviously quite a a meaningful company, but about your experience being different in that, in that workspace. Yeah. You know, I was very fortunate in that I was working in the creative department. I was their director of visual trends. Um, by the end of my tenure there, I was there for 14 years. So I had a few different roles there. And the project that I was working on over the last four years was actually a stock photography collection called the Lean In Collection, which was a partnership with Sheryl Sandberg. And it was all about using the power of images to um, better represent. First, we started with women and then it expanded to queer people, people of color. We had a project about Muslim women, um, and it was really wonderful. So it's not like I felt like I was faking it. That was very meaningful work for me. At the same time, my nights and my weekends were filled with all kinds of occultic activities. You know, I was doing a conference at NYU that I still do called the Occult Humanities Conference. I was curating art shows. I was teaching classes in ritual. I was running an art space, all of this stuff. And I got to a point where both the demands of my time in both arenas was growing and I just couldn't sustain it anymore. And I had to make a big choice. And the choice was, do I stick to what's stable and safe and frankly, more lucrative? Um, or do I trust my passion and just do a trust fall? And I had to, I just had to, you know, follow this path instead. Um, The other thing I'll say, though, is, you know, at Getty Images, there were a lot of creative people, a lot of people who had things they did on the side. And because it was a corporate place with an HR department, we didn't ask each other about our religion or our spirituality. You know, just like I I would never have asked a coworker of mine unless I knew them super, super well, like, hey, do you believe in God? Like, you just... You just don't really have those conversations in those contexts. So, um, yeah, as people knew me closer and closer, there, I would invite some people into it. And certain, certainly on certain pagan holidays, I would be like, it's Beltane. And I'd bring a, bring a big, beautiful bouquet in. And people would be like, great. You know, I'd sometimes, you know, give them wine. <laughs> and they were happy. So, yeah, I didn't actually feel ostracized, but I did feel a little bit contained. And by the end, I really felt like, um, I just had so much more to explore. So yeah, yeah. They, I was really lucky that it was a a lovely place to work, but it, I just outgrew it. 
that's a great way to jump out of the corporate world and into the discussion of um, both the anxieties and the fantasies related to feminine power. Can you, I know you talk a lot about that in the book. Can you just elaborate a little bit about both both polar yes. ends of that spectrum. Well, what's so interesting when you trace um, the image of the witch and stories about witches is it's every negative thing that we say about women. So um, especially during the witch hunts, let's say. So we're talking end of the 15th century through the 17th century. The image of the witch was either young and sexy and slutty and, you know, having sex with the devil all the time, right? Or literally, this is what was said about these women and why a lot of women were accused. Or they were old and haggard and naked and slutty and like you just you you kind of you know or dried up but naked anyway and no one wants to see that like it's like every negative thing you could say and so um one of the things i talk about in the book is that i i love art i have an art background and so i do a lot of talking about artists who are witches and a lot of um, analysis of the visual component of the witch in art history and one of the artists that some of you might be familiar familiar with is Albrecht Dürer, who in Germany was doing these beautiful engravings. And some of his most famous engravings are about witches. And it's really funny because they're always naked. And sometimes they're young and sexy and conjuring the devil. And sometimes they're old and naked and, you know, by his depiction, ugly, conjuring the devil. So, you know, that that's definitely a component of it is the sexuality. Um, I imagine some of you know there were a lot of books that started to be printed and circulated throughout Europe thanks to the advent of the printing press. And one of the most famous books that came out was called the Malleus Maleficarum, which means the witch's hammer. And in this book, the writer of it, who was a real jerk named Heinrich Kramer... And he basically says, yes, people of all gender, well, he would have said people of both genders back then can be witches, but it's usually going to be women because they are weak, they have a high libido, they are ambitious, and they are gossipy. And so, you know, it's like all these negative things that we say about women, although now we might say they're too frigid or, you know, these things evolve all the time. Um, but, but I think that's really, really interesting. And, and a lot of the people who were accused of being witches were what I think of as inconvenient women. Um, they were often over 40. They often had no children or not enough children. Some of them owned land and were widows and so people wanted their land. Some of them, we would probably think of them now as mentally unstable or mentally ill. So all of these different categories of ways that you were kind of an aberration as a woman, um, unless you were, you know, really a wife, a mother, you know, innocent, subservient. Absolutely. You would be considered a threat. And we still see that today for sure. Um, one of the things I write about in the book is that even though a lot of people are calling themselves witches for this positive reason and it's gaining in popularity, you still Google any female politician on either side of the aisle and the word witch and you will find her photoshopped as a witch by the other side. Like it's, it's still a word we use to silence or blame or shame women. And of course, we have a lot more nasty words than that today, too. Um, so, you know, it, it's really interesting to watch it evolve. And it's something that is exciting to see be reframed as this positive word and this word of pride and power. And um, to me, it's a word very much of having power on your own terms. And especially if that power might be considered feminine, it's still yours. And you get to take responsibility for what you do with that power and how you make real change in the world. So I love it. I love it too. It uh, and yet, you know, I think as recently as today or yesterday, uh, he who shall remain nameless yes. talked about the witch hunt against him. And there's a lot of use of this terminology in a really negative way that when convenient implies unfair and when convenient implies I'm scared of you, you're the devil. Can you just talk a little bit about the 
the multiple uses of of phrases like witch hunt. I mean, nasty woman doesn't say witch, but it still implies sure. the same thing. And and then I, the second piece of that would be, what do we do to take positive ownership of that beyond just admitting? Yes, I am a woman of power and I own who I am. And actually, I think you're kind of threatened by it. Yeah. What do we so, do? well, witch hunt is, is, um, not only is the president using it all the time, so much so that there is a Twitter account called Witch Hunt Tweets that tabulates every time he uses the word witch hunt on Twitter. And thank the gods for this because I needed that research for my book. Otherwise, I would have had to count it all up myself. So bless Twitter. But anyway, he's, he's been doing it so often, but we're also seeing other primarily men use that in terms of like the Me Too movement. They're calling it a witch hunt. Um, so to me, it just belies ignorance about the history of that phrase. And let's be clear, there are still parts of the world today where to be accused of being a witch is to be, uh, you know, killed. I mean, Papua New Guinea, India, Sub-Saharan Africa, like some parts of South America, uh, South America. And, and here in America, there's still certain contexts, families, communities that you don't want to be called a witch or considered a witch because people still think it's um, diabolical and dangerous. And so, you know, when I hear him use that phrase, I just kind of have to roll my eyes because he is victimizing himself and using a word that is actually referring to the least powerful being victimized often by the most powerful. And here he is a white cisgendered man with lots and lots of power. Um, you know, not only casting himself as a victim, but using that very word. So I just think it's ironic, but I've been asked, does it offend me? It doesn't offend me when he uses the word. I think it's ridiculous. His policies offend me. Um, so I'm sorry, what was the second part of your question? <laughs> I, I, I think you've got there. I mean, the, the, the second piece is really what we do to flip the tides and show that this, um, fear that they have of the feminine power actually maybe be, maybe is worth fearing because we have this individual and collective strength and individuality mm -hmm. in some of the choices that we make. I think there's a lot to be said for, um, and, and this is going to lead to my next question about you as your young self, um, a, a lot to be said for finding ways to validate, validate and support each other with some of these non-traditional or off the, the mainstream choices. Sure. So maybe elaborate on that a little sure. bit. Sure. I mean, I, I often say that I'm not here to evangelize or proselytize. Like if, if, if the word witch doesn't feel right for a person, that's okay. Like do not use it. Um, you know, we're not really recruiting. It's fine. <laughs> so, you know, th that's okay. But I, I would hope that people could draw inspiration from this archetype that's about being a complicated what, like she's not always nice. She's not always beautiful and well behaved. She is often, you know, inconvenient. Um, she can be pissed off sometimes. I will say that if you really analyze fairy tales, usually she's not someone who's attacking for no reason. She is retaliating. You know, you've stolen a vegetable from her garden, so she's going to curse you. Sometimes she gets a little overboard and she'll lock you in a tower and, you know, or your daughter in a tower. But, but she, there is this element, I think, of protect, self-protectiveness or protectiveness of one's boundaries that I think is a really important lesson for all of us, but especially feminine identifying people to embody and to feel fortified by. So for me, the witch is, um, you know, she's like a vitamin. She makes me feel stronger. And whether I'm just picturing a witch in my mind or whether I'm plugging into my own spiritual practice and really embody, embodying the witch in a literal way, it makes me feel stronger and ready to fight because we have so much that we need to fight for. Um, the other thing is witches are often outsiders. They are often on the margins. Um, and it, it is why I think the archetype is so attractive to women, people of color, queer people, gender non-binary people, uh, because there's empathy baked into that. And so, yes, a lot of people who practice witchcraft today, it's just another flavor of self-help or self-empowerment. Nothing wrong with that. 
but why are you empowering yourself if you're not then going to use that power to lift other people up? So that's why I also love the archetype of covens, of collectives, and of using your magic or your power to change the world so it's better for everybody. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. When you were a, a, a girl making potions and doing the things, playing in the woods and fantasizing. Did you imagine that this would be now how you frame your whole life view? I don't think so. Um, I was a really creative kid and my magic and my art making were very interwoven and they still are. Um, And so I would have been so overjoyed that I wrote a book and did something creative with my life. And when I think about little her, I give her a little high five. But I mean, it's such an added bonus that it gets to be, you know, in the framework of magic, which has always been an important ingredient of my life. So I feel really, really blessed and, and surprised in a great way. That's awesome. So you've been on a book tour. Um, I think this is the last Bay Area night. Is there a question that you wish you'd been asked? What have what what are we really not talking about? I mean, we like to create safe spaces for getting to the real meaty parts of this. What are we missing? You know, something that gets asked a little bit, but I'd love to talk about a little bit more is like, how can, how can we be witches in a capitalist framework? It's, it's, it's something I struggle with, to be honest, because so much of being a witch, I would say being any kind of spiritual person is about honoring nature. It's about, you know, as I said, um, fighting for the most vulnerable. Um, and it's about living in cycle with with the seasons and all of this stuff that's really hard to do in a capitalist society. So how do, how do we do that? And, and so I've just been trying to grapple with the idea that like witchcraft is really popular right now. And that means it's becoming commoditized and I have, you know, I'm struggling with it because, Hey, I'm here. I'm trying to make a living, right? I'm not shy about the fact that like, this is my vocation. This is my job. And it's great for me that witches are popular right now. But at the same time, I would just like to remind people that if you are dabbling in any kind of witchcraft, whether it's, you know, you're buying tarot cards or incense or, you know, crystals that you approach it as mindfully and as ethically as you do your food or how often you're taking a car versus carpooling like can you support small businesses if you are going to source certain herbs can you make sure you're sourcing it from communities um out of out of respect who who grow the herbs and use them in their sacred ceremonies or maybe don't use those herbs at all out of respect to some indigenous populations so those are the kind of questions that i'm grappling with i, I get there at the end of the book too um and so yeah, I do think witchcraft is very attractive to people who are attracted to certain websites. Um, maybe I won't name them because I don't know who's in the room, but there's a, we know some of these sites that are very fashionable and spiritual and now they sell you healing, you know, crystals to stick up, up your private parts. And you know what I'm talking about. And, 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 that's great, but if you're going to spend $3,000 on a magic crystal egg, like maybe you want to spend that money supporting people who could really use that support. Or maybe you want to make sure it's, you know, supporting someone who's a small business owner and not a fancy lady who's taking something for $2 and selling it for 3000 So those are the kind of things I'm thinking about these days. That's amazing. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about your personal community? I think a number of us, more than half of the audience tonight, are part of the Parlay House community, as well as the Commonwealth Club and many other super supportive communities. What's your coven like? 
How do when, how often do you meet? What are the gatherings like? Sort of take us into your home, your living room of your apartment in Brooklyn. Absolutely. When you'll soon be moving to the townhouse down <laughs> the street. <laughs> so um, I started the most recent coven that I'm in uh, a little under two years ago. It was spring equinox. So I guess that would have been like a year and a half ago. And I started it because I had been a member of other covens and I had been between them. And I thought, you know, you have to start, start the coven you want to see in the world, right? Be the coven you want to see in the world. And so first I decided I didn't want to lead it myself because one of the things that happens when you're somebody who people identify as, I don't know, a a leader in a spiritual space is that you actually don't get to participate very often. You're so busy teaching and leading that you don't get to actually like do the thing. And I didn't want that. I didn't want to lead the coven. It's also a lot of responsibility. You're vacuuming your house. You're buying hummus for everybody. Like it's a thing, right? And so I, I curated the coven really mindfully. I invited a lot of people who I thought either were witches already, witch adjacent, maybe flirting with witchery. Um, I was really mindful, honestly, about making sure it wasn't all white ladies uh, or all straight people. So I made sure that I was inviting a lot of people from a lot of different lived experiences. Now, I'm really lucky I live in New York City, so I happen to have a lot of friends who fit that profile, and I know that's not easy everywhere, but that was important to me. Um, And, you know, some covens meet once a month. Sometimes it's on a lunar cycle. We're all very busy witches. So we meet on the pagan holidays or holy days. So that's about eight times a year um, on the pagan holy wheel, we call it. And we get together at other times too. But it's really incredible. Um, you know, we start every day or every meeting first with like some wine and some nibbles and chatting. And we always start too late. I mean, it's just like a book club, right? It's the same same thing. And then we have a beautiful altar that we set up that's, you know, seasonal or on theme and that's festooned with candles and flowers and sacred objects, some of which we bring from home. Sometimes we put our jewelry on there if we want it charged up. Uh, we cleanse with some kind of smoke. We call circle, which is how you cast sacred space. Um, and then we do whatever the ritual is that the leader of that evening has decided. Sometimes it's meditation. Sometimes it's a spell. There's a lot of sharing. How are we all doing? What are we working through? How can we support each other? And then we reopen the circle and have some more wine. <laughs> Actually sounds a lot like Parlay House. <laughs> I mean, yeah. No, it really is. And I think I think what you're talking about here is you have a very specific framework and belief system that I'm not I'm not taking lightly and I really respect it. But I also think the the values that you've talked about tonight, inclusion, diversity, thoughtfulness, creating a safe space for other people are the values that we live as well. And you're doing it and I think we're doing it because there is a void in the rest of our lives for that place where we're at the top of the hierarchy and we're taking care of each other rather than taking care of other people. Um, And I love that at the core of your coven, you were super thoughtful about making sure there was a lot of representation of, of a range of people, not only so that it was diverse by nature, but so you actually could add value and learn from each other and different perspectives. And so, um, there is so much more, you know, I, I don't identify as a witch. And in fact, when I first thought about this, I thought, ah, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. And I, I read your book and I really could relate because so much of your core values, um, both in terms of how you relate to the world, how you relate to nature, how you relate to other people, and how you value your own strength and sort of hold fast at a time when um, things about us and our nature are being questioned are truths that have caused Parlay House to be in, you know, soon to be 10 cities and more than 5,000 members around the world. This is, there, there is a need, not necessarily for witchcraft as the prescription, but certainly for all of your values and, and our values. So, so thank you for adding a new perspective on that. Um, 
I think it probably makes sense. We have so many interested people, and I saw a few come in hats and um, a wide range of um, of views on this. I don't want to be the only one asking the questions. Are you all uh, Are you all okay if I open this up to some questions from the audience? Let's do it. Don't be shy. I think we have some microphones that are being passed around. Someone be bold. I might call on Wendy Norris. Wendy Norris has been a, a supporter of Parlay House since we began. She did an unbelievable uh, art show recently in New York that we had a Parlay House event in New York around uh, by a famous uh, painter who actually uh, believed in spells and sort of witchcraft in her own way, Leonora Carrington. And it was a phenomenal show. And it was Wendy's idea um, that we put the two of us together on the stage. So maybe, Wendy, I can put you on the yes. spot now. Can I, can I, I'll, I'll, I'll tee this up by saying that I'm here because of Wendy, uh, because in this book, there's a whole chapter called art, Witches, and I identify five different women throughout art history who perhaps might not have called themselves witches, but they were using either spiritualism or witchcraft or some kind of other otherworldly uh, technique to create their artwork. And so Wendy and I bonded over Leonora Carrington and Remedio Zavaro, who are two of my favorite artists of all time and who she's like one of the world's living experts in. So, yes. Thank you for that. Um, uh, so, so for me, one of the things I think about um, oftentimes is the, the idea of spirituality and religion. And I'm wondering like how you touch upon it in your book, um, Pam, but how do you reconcile, you know, the idea of witchcraft and pagan, you know, cultures? I, I just was, I just did this incredible ceremony in Bolinas last weekend, the Tashlik ceremony. It felt like Pam should have been there. You know, we were like doing these offerings and saying these prayers and it was really quite incredible. And it, you know, this is this like 5,000 year old sort of Jewish tradition, right? And it felt to me like it was a, a like we could have been a bunch of witches, right? I, we felt like we were witches, and some of them are here, some of the people in the audience. But um, how do you reconcile the two, or do you? Does one need to? Are they all interrelated? I mean, I'm not one who is religious. I'm not a religious person, but I'm a very spiritual person. So I always wonder how you think about this. Definitely. Um, you know, it's an evolution, and I think that you know, for me, my spirituality is so personal and so personally defined and I've given myself permission to let it evolve as I do. Um, and I think that, you know, I am still Jewish insofar as my family is Jewish. Um, we celebrate certain holidays and it's as much about connecting to my ancestors and their heritage as it is anything else. And I, I had a really interesting experience when I was young. My temple had these prayer books when I was a kid and God was always referred to as he and all of the prayers they called on Moses and Jacob and Isaac, all of the forefathers of, you know, Jewish lore. And then when I was in elementary school, the board decided to get new prayer books and to have prayer books where God was no longer a he, just God. It was gender neutral. And suddenly Sarah, Rebecca, Leah were added to the prayers. Like that happened in my life in real time. I had to learn new words, words that were more inclusive of gender. And what that taught me is that religion you know, may I be struck down, but like it's made by people. <laughs> so we get to evolve it and we get to change it and adapt it. I mean, this is my opinion, but uh, I think I'm right. And, <laughs> and so what that also taught me is even though there was a lot about Judaism that doesn't feel right to me and paganism just feels more like a home to me spiritually, um, that we have permission to own our own spirituality and to constantly be in co-creation with it. And sometimes I blend the two. So there's this beautiful holiday called Mabin, which is essentially witches Thanksgiving. It's around autumn equinox. It's right around Rosh Hashanah. So I'll do a Mabin ritual, but I'll still eat apples and honey as part of it. I blend it. You know, Judaism is actually on a lunar cycle. There's a lot of beautiful um, interconnections. 
The other thing I'll say is when I was uh, in college, I discovered the work of people like Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell, and I understand that they're problematic faves at times, but um, those writings taught me that there is, I believe, a universal spirit that connects us all, and we just kind of fall into whatever cultural interpretation that we're born into, um, whether it's your religious community or whatever kind of community. And that's kind of by accident. Like, I don't know why I was born into a Jewish family. You know, I I don't know. So anyhow, I think this is all very malleable. And one of the reasons I love witchcraft is because it makes room for that. It says there is no one way to practice. There is no one book, you know, ask any practicing witch that you might know and say, so how did you do, how did you learn this? And you're going to get all different answers, different books that led them to this book. And she, you know, they started here and that led them there. And I love that. But, you know, you have to have the right uh, kind of temperament for it. Some people really like to be told what to do. That's just not me. Who else has got a question for us? Oh, a lot. Hi. Uh, I appreciate you sharing and I'm learning a lot. And I have to tell you that I'm very naive on this subject. But it's nice to see the Wizard of Oz on stage. Yes! I love the Wizard of Oz. Yes. But my question is this. um, I'm a little confused, and I know I have to Google it, but paganism, atheism, all of the different religions, denominations, we know that they all have some mysteries that none of us can answer. But I heard you talk about offering up offerings. And I heard you talk about being blessed. And I just wondered, who are you making the offerings to and who's blessing you? I love that question. So I'll tell you the really personal answer. Um, And again, it's going to really vary from person to person. So in my case, I do have certain deities that I feel connected to. Um, so one that I've loved since I was a child is Artemis, the Greek goddess of the moon and the hunt and the wild and the feminine. I've just loved her since I was a child. I'm not Greek. <laughs> I just, I loved her and she is a deity that I feel very, very connected to. There will be times throughout my life where I need a sign or I need guidance or I feel like I'm on the right path and suddenly I'll see one of her symbols, you know, a crescent moon, some deer, an arrow, whatever it is. It just shows up at these miraculous times. I'll tell you a quick story about that. When I decided to leave Getty Images, at first I took a sabbatical, which was, it was unpaid and it was a really scary thing to ask for. Um, and my boss's boss, uh, happened to be in town from London on my last day. And he said to me, you know, we all support you and we have a job for you when you come back in six months, if you still want it. But, you know, congratulate, he knew I was writing a book. Congratulations. We're proud of you. We're rooting for you. And he gave me a bottle of wine. He does not know much about this side of my life. That wine was Artemis wine. It was Stag's Leap Winery. I think it might be from around here, maybe. Like, he didn't, he had, there's no reason that he would ever have chosen that wine. No, you know, he didn't know my connection to her. So anyhow, so things like that shall crop up for me. Now, I imagine your next question is, do you literally believe in Artemis? And my answer would be, I don't know. I don't know. I know that as a symbol and as an energy and as a story, as an archetype, I feel very connected to her. And maybe just humans need to anthropomorphize or personify energy to have a deeper relationship with them. Or maybe she's real. Like, I don't know. And I I don't care. I love that there's mystery and I'm not sure. I just know I get a lot of depth and meaning from her. So she's one of many different kind of gods and goddesses that are on my altar. Some I feel really close to, you know, just like you have best friends you're really, really close to. Some I just call on when I really need help. Just like there are some best friends you might call on when you really need help. But I also tend to also use the word spirit, capital S, which is probably a synonym for God or energy or life force, cosmos, the force. My husband is a huge Star Wars fan, and he knows I'm in this very town right now, and he's very excited. Um, But anyhow, so maybe source is behind all of it. I mean, my understanding of Hinduism is that all of the different gods are just emanations 
uh, or different facets of the one God. And so whatever it is, I just happen to gravitate towards these gods and goddesses. Um, so yeah, does that help at all? So she's saying, are they all blessing me or just one of them? What does it mean when I'm blessed? Um, I suppose it means that I just, I feel an energy come through that feels interconnected to everything and also so much greater than me that I feel like I'm in service to and hopefully a a channel for as I think we all are and can be if we allow ourselves to be. Um, and so in my view of this, sometimes I picture that coming from a certain deity, but sometimes it's just like source or spirit. So it really varies. I know it's really difficult to talk about these things because they're so subjective. They're so personal. Language fails us. That's why I love art so much, actually, um, because art and music to me are and poetry can give us these transcendent spiritual experiences um, so much more than I think just talking about them can. But I'm willing to try. <laughs> Thank you. Tons of questions. So glad it's growing because it's a great way to have wonderful woman community. And as Anne knows, I wore my hat tonight yes. for a specific purpose, which I talked to Pam about, which is my great, 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 great to the 10th grandmother was hung as a witch at Salem, Massachusetts, one of 15. And so it was all about religion and what was happening with that. So I don't think I've ever been really great in terms of being involved with organized religion. Um, and I don't know whether that she denied that she was a witch, whether she was or wasn't, I don't know. She was an uppity woman. So my mother says that I come by that naturally. (laughs) Um, But how is organized religion now looking at the idea of paganism and are they as threatened in many ways? I mean, organized religion seems to be falling off so much these days. What do they think about what you're doing in terms of this kind of a way to have power? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it varies because organized religion isn't a monolith and, and some places have really embraced some practices and have become more into the divine feminine and more into the moon and nature and, and all of that. Um, but what's, what's so tricky about trying to quantify, let's say people who practice some form of witchcraft is like, we don't even have a standardized, like some, some of us call ourselves pagan, some are Wiccan, some are neither, some are, they practice witchcraft, some don't. Like it's, it's a, it's hard to quantify. What we do have numbers around is that more people than ever are calling themselves spiritual and less people than ever are calling themselves religious. Pew Research Center put that out. We also know that people who do identify as pagan or Wiccan, that those numbers are going up. I also see it online. I see that hashtag witches of Instagram has 3 million posts, you know, things like that. Um, so as to what they think of it, I certainly can't speak for them. I can speak for my father-in-law, who's an Episcopal priest. And now my understanding is the Episcopals are pretty cool in America gay marriage, hooray, marriage at all, having sex, hooray, (laughs) you know, like, so they're pretty switched on progressive people. Um, but I do think that people who are, uh, whose vocation is tied in with, um, you know, certainly having some kind of congregation are like, what are those people doing over there? They don't have a building. They don't have a book. Like, is that even real? Is that okay? So I can imagine that there's a little bit of of friction there. And my father-in-law is actually quite wonderful, but he and I have had a lot of conversations around this and he's accepting and tries to understand. But I think he also, you know, he really believes in the Bible and so we're going to not see eye to eye all the time. So, yeah, I think it, it probably varies for sure. Amazing. couple more questions. We've got one and two. Thank you. Thank you for all your work, both of you. I'm curious, Pam, if you ever personally feel vulnerable for your safety with the kind of work that you do. And I'm also curious what you see as the biggest challenge for women collectively as we rise into our power. Okay. 
I've learned that I'm terrible at two-part questions. So, no, like, really, I, my short-term memory, I don't know where it went. So I'm going to answer the first one, and I might actually ask you to remind me of the second one. So do I feel vulnerable? Um, uh, you know, I think any woman who has an opinion in public is vulnerable thanks to Twitter and social media right now. I've seen so many people that I admire and some people that I don't admire, but because they've said something out loud, they are subject to the most horrific behavior. And some of it does, it's threatening. Um, look at Christine Blasey Ford, right? She's someone who stood up to her truth and had to really I mean, change her life because she was threatened so much. And obviously she's far more in the spotlight than, than I, I am. Um, so, so I think in general, it's a vulnerable time to be a woman in public with an opinion. Um, I do certainly have concerns about people misunderstanding me and concerns about, um, you know, yeah, sure. Some people, taking action that could be threatening to me. And I've taken some precautions in terms of like scrubbing my address off the internet and, and things, but I just can't let it stop me from doing the work that I'm meant to be doing. I can't live in fear. And I hope that doesn't ever happen to me. And please send me all your protective blessings and magic. Cause I do think about it and it does worry me sometimes, especially the more in, in the public I am becoming and my work is becoming, um, and I have friends who have had that kind of behavior, you know, tossed at them and it's, it's upsetting. So I can't let it stop me from doing what I have to be doing right now. What was the second part of your question? Uh, what is the biggest challenge for women collectively as each of us rises into ourselves? I think it's the challenge that's been there for hundreds of years, which is, you know, look how far we've come. And yet there still is both a lot of internalized misogyny and external misogyny. And we just have to keep supporting each other. Um, I think the more we interlink and the less threatening and cruel we are to each other um, and the less cruel we are to ourselves, the more fortified we are. So that that's probably, you know, that's certainly what comes to mind. Um, yeah, I think I'll stop. Can there. I can I just add to that? And this is your book, um, but I think the strength is in this room right now. You know, we rise to power by not. I mean, you're brave. You're sitting out and putting yourself with no other acknowledged witches up here with you. That's pretty brave to put yourself forward and sort of say, this is who I am. This is what I believe in. This is how I go forward with my life. Here's, here's a description so that you can understand me better. But I think when we see each other as unique individuals and when we're willing to accept that breadth of experience, that's when we start a cascade outwards that is inclusive and pulls each one of us forward. So the fact that there are 145 people in this room, all of whom are open to learning about an alternative way of looking at the world and nature and God and all of those things is part of what will mend this broken society. And so I th that would be my half of that, that answer. I love that. Thank you. Thank you both for creating this incredibly provocative forum and conversation. And something I've never really been exposed to in the real world. It's always something that I've been aware of in literature or in art, um, but not in the real world. It's been sort of on the fringe, and you don't really find yourself talking to a real witch in your real life. So thank you both for that um, and for everyone being here. It's just been a very fascinating experience for me. What I'm, and I feel like I could ask dumb questions because of where we are and a supportive environment. Where do you see men in the context of covens, witchcraft, your lives, you've spoken about the patriarchy and where women have been vilified, which is have been vilified throughout history, and yet you have, a, I think, a supportive husband and father-in-law, and it occurred to me, where do men fit into all of this? That's a thank wonderful, you. not stupid question at all, so thank you. 
Um, I actually say right up front in the book, in the intro, that people of all genders are witches and have been identified as witches. So um, during the witch hunts, about 75 to 85% of the people who were accused were women, but a lot of them were men too. Um, and I know uh, male identifying witches as well. So they're very, very welcome. That said, I do think that the reason that most people are gravitating towards this is because there is such a, there's such a lack of a paradigm of feminine power that's considered holy and strong and sacred. Um, so, you know, uh, that to me is one of the reasons why so many women love it and why the archetype of the witch is often shown or usually shown as a woman too. So yes, men are absolutely welcome. And I don't think that our world is going to get any better by just flipping the scales completely, but we have a long way to go to course correct. (laughs) So I think the witch is helping us do that. This is a perfect time for us to thank Pam for her braveness. Her book is for sale in the back of the room. She's going to sign it um, for anybody who wants it. And for any of you who want to join our own version of a coven, which is not spiritual, but boy, is it supportive and powerful. Um, Good feel free soul. to feel free to email me um, on the Parlay House website. It says contact us and I will include you and there's no obligation. But boy, I think you'll feel a similar sense of connection and inclusion and diversity and power and everything that Pam is talking about in this book, which I read page after page. And we've had great conversations and I made a new friend, which is kind of the connection that we're all hoping to get um, one woman at a time. And thank you to Commonwealth Club for this super fun and different and amazing event. Thank you. As Ann said, uh, Pam's going to be around in the back to sign books. If you haven't purchased one, please do so. Think about joining the club. It's a great organization, 114 years. We have a new building downtown San Francisco on the Embarcadero. As a member, you can stop in there anytime. And uh, Thank you, Anne, for doing a great job of moderating this amazing event. Have a great night. Thank you, everybody.